Hello, this is Robert Whittaker with the series of abdominal podcasts. In this one, we're going to look at the genitourinary system. Let's start with the kidneys. In the adult, each kidney weighs about 120 grams. It's about 11 by 6 by 4 centimetres, and it has something in the region of 1,200 ml of blood passing through it every minute. Each kidney lies in a retroperitoneal position, and it can move about an inch or two and a half centimetres on a deep respiration. It's important to appreciate that they lie in association with the psoas muscle, and hence the pelvis of each kidney faces not only medially but somewhat anterior. Each kidney has about a million nephrons, and its lymphatic drainage is to the paraaortic nodes. The upper poles of the kidneys are slightly nearer than the lower poles, and again this is because they lie in association with psoas muscle, which is in fact getting somewhat larger as it passes down the abdomen. Any suggestion on an x-ray, for instance, that the lower poles are lying nearer each other than the upper poles would immediately suggest that there may be a horseshoe kidney, which is one of the main congenital anomalies. On each side, the hilum of the kidney, where the vessels and the ureter go in and out, is approximately on the transpyloric plane at the level of the vertebral body of L1. The sympathetic supply is from T12 to L1, and this is mainly for vasoconstriction of the vessels, and it probably transmits pain by the general visceral afferents which run with the sympathetic system. We think that there are parasympathetics from the vagus reaching the kidneys, but we're not at all sure why they need parasympathetic supply. Now as you look at the hilum of the kidney, anteriorly is the vein, then the renal artery, and then posteriorly the ureter with the renal pelvis. So at surgery on the kidney, if we want to approach the renal pelvis in order perhaps to open it and remove a stone, then we would need to turn the kidney over anteriorly so we can approach it from behind. We can easily remember the order of these structures by VAU, vein, artery and ureter. The main blood supply to the kidney is the renal arteries and these come off from each side of the aorta at about the level of L1 or just below it. The renal veins drain into the inferior vena cava. On the right side this is a relatively short distance but on the left side, the left renal vein crosses right over in front of the aorta. And it might be just worth noting that two other veins drain into the left renal vein, the left suprarenal vein does, and also the gonadal vein on the left side drains into it. The arteries that reach the kidney break up into a segmental artery, and then these in turn have lobar arteries, and then interlobar arteries, and then arcuate arteries. There are also, from these, the efferent arterioles to the glomeruli in the cortex. The blood supply is, to some extent, segmental, and in addition, there are often polar or capsular vessels with minimal collateral circulation with the main vessels. You can see with the little diagram that accompanies this podcast that the renal arteries then divide up into segments of the kidney, but this is relatively little clinical application. Now, each kidney is surrounded 
by its perirenal fascia, and within this fascia is fat. The fascia has an opening near the renal pelvis, but otherwise it completely encloses the kidney, so that the only way that any pus or extravasated urine can release itself is alongside the ureter. This perinephric fascia is often called gerotus fascia. Between this fascia and the capsule of the kidney is the surrounding perinephric fat. Now the posterior relationships of the kidneys on both sides is the diaphragm superiorly and lateral to that is the costodiaphragmatic recess on each side. Also lying posterior is the twelfth rib and the subcostal neurovascular bundle with a vein artery nerve in that order from above downwards. A little lower posteriorly on the kidney is the ileohypogastric and the ileoinguinal nerves. And below this, the kidney lies on the quadratus lumborum muscle. Perhaps somewhat more important are the anterior relationships. At the upper pole of each kidney, there is a suprarenal gland. On the right, it's worth knowing that this gland not only lies in close proximity to the upper pole of the kidney, but it also lies partially tucked away behind the inferior vena cava. Much of the kidney on the right, for instance, is covered by peritoneum, but around the hilum of the kidney on that side is the second part of the duodenum, and a little lower than that, the hepatic flexure and the beginning of the transverse mesocolon. Lying against the lower part of the kidney on each side is small bowel. Then on the left side, the tail of the pancreas and the splenic vessels also lie across the hilum. And rather like the right side, there is also the splenic flexure and the attachment of the transverse mesocolon. Now let's move on down the urinary tract, and we can now come to the ureter. It comes from the renal pelvis at the pelvi-ureteric junction. This is normally a very nice tapered affair, but if there is any kinking, or any discrepancy in size between the renal pelvis and the ureter, then we are liable to get an acute hydronephrosis of the pelvi-ureteric obstructive type. From the kidney to the bladder, the ureter is 25 centimetres long in an adult, and lying posterior to the ureter will be the psoas muscle, the genitofemoral nerve, the sacroiliac joint, the common iliac artery bifurcation. Anteriorly, it depend a bit on which side one looks at, but on the right there is the duodenum, the right gonadal artery, the right colic artery, the ileal mesentery, the superior mesenteric artery, whilst on the left there's the left gonadal artery, the left colic artery, and the sigmoid mesentery. As it passes beneath the bottom edge of the broad ligament in the female, the ureter passes under the uterine artery. And in the male, the equivalent to the uterine artery is the vas. So the ureter passes posteriorly to the vas. In the female, it's related to the lateral fornix of the vagina. And as we've said before, we can sometimes feel a small stone in the ureter in that position through the vagina. Importantly, the blood supply of the ureter comes from the renal artery, from the gonadal arteries, perhaps the odd small vessel from the common iliac artery, and also it comes definitely 
from the superior vesicle artery. Although there are autonomic nerves to the ureter, much of the ureteric activity is controlled by pacemakers in the upper pole calyces of the kidney itself. The rate of these pacemakers is determined more by the rate of urinary flow than any other feature. The general visceral afferents which accompany these sympathetic fibres will transmit the sensation of pain from the ureter. And because the original kidneys develop unilaterally, this pain can be localised to one side or the other. As the pain, say from a urinary stone, passes from the kidney, where it will give loin pain, and the stone passes down into the ureter, the pain is then transmitted down into the iliac fossa, and then finally when the stone is trying to get through into the bladder from the ureter, the pain will be at the tip of the penis in the male, and deep in the pelvis in the female. It is true to say that there is a relative narrowing where the renal pelvis meets the ureter in some patients. In other, this is just a smooth transition. Again, there is a relative narrowing at the ureterovesical junction, and it is here that some little stones may get caught up. But personally, I think it is a myth to say that there is any narrowing or any type of change in the diameter of the ureter at the pelvic brim where it passes over the common iliac arteries. On an intravenous urogram, there is sometimes a little flattening of the ureter at that place, but I don't believe that there is any increased resistance to the flow of urine there. Again, on an x-ray, it is often said that the ureter lies approximately along the tips of the transverse processes of the lumbar vertebrae, that it passes over the sacroiliac joint, and that it approximates the ischial spine. All these are true from time to time, but not consistently so. In the living patient, we can recognise the ureter because it's often the most superficial structure in the pelvis. If we watch it or tweak it with a pair of forceps, it will show peristalsis. And when the peritoneum is reflected, it often sticks to the undersurface of the peritoneum. Each ureter enters the bladder at the lateralmost point of the trigonal muscle within the bladder. It has a relatively straight course through the actual muscle of the bladder and then it runs in a submucosal tunnel. This submucosal tunnel, provided that the ratio between the diameter of the ureter and the length of the tunnel is at least 5 to 1, this tunnel will help to prevent vesico-ureteric reflux a condition which be, can be extremely dangerous in children in the presence of infection and it can lead to severe scarring of the kidneys, a so-called reflux nephropathy. And now we reach the bladder, a strange organ with its transitional epithelium which is rubbery, watertight, lax, stretchy and contains no glands. The bladder wall is whirls of smooth muscle called the detrusor muscle and it lies in three layers, an inner and outer longitudinal and a middle circular layer. Its arterial supply is the superior and inferior vesicle arteries, branches from the obturator artery, and in the female also sometimes from the uterine and vaginal arteries. In the male, 
Particularly, the veins converge in a vesicoprostatic plexus, uh, which also drains posteriorly through Batson's valveless veins to the internal and external vertebral plexuses. The lymphatics are to the internal and external iliac nodes. The main motor nerve supply to the bladder are the parasympathetics, and these are coming from the pelvis at S234. Not only do they provide a motor for contraction of the detrusor muscle, but they also carry general visceral afferent sensory fibres which detect a full bladder. They supply more of a discomfort than real pain. In an infant, these sensations probably lead to a reflex contraction of the bladder, but later this is modified by cortical inhibition. There are some general visceral afferent, in other words, sensory fibres, running with the sympathetics also. These come from the trigone of the bladder and also, importantly, from the peritoneum over its fundus. These fibres will detect exceedingly full bladder uh, amounting to pain. The sympathetics themselves probably provide some vasomotor function also and some inhibitory function against the parasympathetics. But really importantly is the fact that there is only sympathetic tone controlling the bladder neck in males and this allows the bladder neck to shut during ejaculation. Such sympathetic fibres are not present in females. From the apex of the bladder and running up the abdominal wall is the median umbilical ligament, which of course was the obliterated urachus. The upper part of the bladder is referred to as the fundus, and then posteriorly is the base, and then inferiorly is the neck. If you look inside the bladder, we see that there's a true wall which is rough and trabeculated and rather irregular, but there's also a triangular trigone low down, leading to the bladder neck, which is flat. The ureteric orifices are at the superior margins, at either end of what's known as the interureteric bar. Now we'll complete this podcast with a short description of the suprarenal or adrenal glands, and then we'll continue in the next podcast with the lower parts of the genitourinary system. Each suprarenal has a medulla, which is neural ectoderm, and a cortex, which is mesoderm. They lie outside the gyrotus fascia that we talked about when we were discussing the kidney. At the time of operation, they can be seen easily because they have a slightly yellowy-brown appearance. Their blood supply is plentiful and important as they're supplied not only by a small suprarenal artery direct from the aorta, but also from branches of the inferior phrenic and also the renal arteries. Their veins are different on each side. On the left, it passes into the renal vein, but on the right, it goes into the inferior vena cava directly by a very short, stubby vein, which is quite difficult to deal with at the time of surgery. On the right side, it looks more like a hat, but on the left side, it's rather crescentic. On the right side, anteriorly, is the right lobe of the liver and the inferior vena cava, whereas posterior to it is the right crust of the diaphragm, and it is, of course, in contact with the kidney at its upper pole. On the left, it's associated with the lesser sac of the stomach, and posteriorly is the left crust of the diaphragm. So with that brief description of the adrenal glands, we'll close this podcast and continue in the next one.
Thank you for listening. For the drawings that accompany this podcast, we ask you to look at our website, which is instantanatomy.net.